So jumping into our passage this morning, uh, one of the things that God's word makes very clear, and as we've seen in our study of 1 Timothy, is that building a healthy church doesn't happen by accident. We, we don't just sort of accidentally fall into, slip into church health. Our natural drift is actually away from health. If we're not purposeful, if we're not intentional, we're not going to move towards deeper godliness and deeper faith, but actually the opposite way. And so as we've seen in this letter that Paul's written to Timothy in the church at Ephesus, he's saying, hey, you need to be intentional about your growth. You need to guard sound doctrine, guard the gospel. You need to guard leadership structures and the leadership culture of your church. And you need to be careful that you're walking in godliness. And in many ways, some churches have sort of punted on these things. They've gone passive. They, they haven't intentionally and purposely walked in these things and guarded these things. And so the church culture has really become a mess. But on the other side, many churches with good intentions and a desire to protect very good things have done so in a way that has become harsh and heavy-handed. And so maybe some of you, that has been your experiences in churches, is that the church said, hey, we want to guard the gospel, we want to guard sound doctrine, we want to walk in godliness, we want to have a good leadership culture, but the way that came across was graceless and heavy-handed and critical. And so rather than thriving in your faith, it discouraged you. Rather than the church being a place where people loved each other and they were excited about Jesus and they were growing in godliness with joy, it just felt like that there was this cloud over their experience. And it felt like, hey, the moment I messed up, there was somebody to jump on me and be critical of me. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we avoid these two extremes? How do we avoid the passivity and, and not caring about sound doctrine and godliness and, and caring about leadership culture? But at the same time, how do we guard all those things without becoming heavy-handed and harsh and critical? Well, as God tells us this morning, we do that by remembering we are a family. When we disciple, when we serve, when we encourage, when we correct one another with hearts that we are family, then guarding sound doctrine and guarding leadership structures and culture and urging one another to godliness isn't graceless and harsh, but we life-giving and fruitful. And so here's the main idea for us this morning. A healthy church family treats each other as family because Christ has made us family. A healthy church treats each other as family because Christ has made us family. And so let's first talk about what it means to treat each other as family. And there's two aspects of treating each other as family that I want to highlight from this text. First, families commit to each other's growth. And so here's what we read in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So here's what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's creating a contrast. He's, he's describing a way not to correct, not to teach, not to disciple with the way that we should. And so he says, hey, Timothy, when you have to teach, when you have to exhort, when you have to disciple an older man, do not rebuke him. Now, the word here for rebuke means do not rebuke harshly. Do not rebuke with a heavy-handed, critical, in a heavy-handed, critical way. Rather, encourage. And the word there in the Greek means to urge or to appeal to as a father. And so what he's saying is, hey, when you enter into that situation where you're discipling, the way that you do that, the way that you talk to this guy matters. Do not rebuke someone heavy-handedly, but encourage urge them, appeal to them. 
Now, scripture says that we are to honor our mother and father. We are to honor our parents because, one, of the position that they have in our lives, the authority that they have in our lives, but also because they are older, and so we respect those who are older than us, but also because, hey, even if you don't agree with them all the time, they've lived more life than you, and they know more than you, and so they have more wisdom, and so we respect and honor that wisdom. Scripture calls all of us to have this posture towards our parents, and that sort of posture is to bleed into how we treat those who are older than us. So Timothy, when you have to correct and rebuke an older man, when you have to teach and disciple him, show him honor. Show him respect. Don't come off heavy-handed and harsh and critical that veers into disrespect. Rather, urge him, appeal to him with this sense of, hey, I want to honor you because you're older than me. Honor you because you probably know more than me, even though I'm having to teach you in this thing. And you probably have more wisdom because you've, you've lived life longer than I have. And so there's this respect the sense of dignity that we have towards those who are older. And so we treat older men in the church the way that we would treat our fathers with the heart of encouragement, appealing to their sense of wisdom and maturity. And it's the same thing with older women. Treat them as you would treat your mom. You don't get harsh with your mom. You don't disrespect your mom. I was, I was raised by a single mom, and, and she wasn't perfect. And at times, she would discipline me and say things to me that were less than godly. And I, in my wisdom, thought I needed to let her know that. And the way that that would come across was not helpful. Rarely was it helpful. Usually, it was disrespectful and harsh. And did that ever bring about my mom going, oh, you know what, Chris, you're right. I should not have done that. How dare I do that? I'm going to repent. No, it injected more brokenness and sin into the situation. But there have been times where I've actually talked with my mom about certain things in a way that showed her respect and honor and dignity. And guess what happened? She realized, hey, I crossed the line. She realized, hey, I've sinned against my son in this way, and I don't want to do that. And, and the difference between showing that honor and respect as you do a father and mother and coming across harshly is this. Hey, I want my dad, I want my mom to be good at what God's called them to do. Like, I want my dad to be a good dad. I want my mom to be a good mom. And so the way that I'm going to speak to them shows that I want to build them up. And so, hey, kids, here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a little lesson to you from God's word. Like, there are going to be times where your parents sin against you. You, you understand that. They're not perfect. But in that moment, if you have those conversations with your parents, are you trying to tear them down and rip that situation into shreds and inject more sin? Or do you want your parents to thrive? Do you want your mom and your dad to actually be good and encouraged in what they do? Because guess what? When they're doing their job in an encouraged way, you're going to thrive. And that's the posture we are to have to older people. Hey, I want you to thrive. I, I, I want you to grow in your faith. I want to honor and respect your place in this church. And so if I have, the Lord calls me to bring teaching and correction to you, I want to do that in such a way that you are built up. And look, the makeup of this church is young. Like I, I'm, I'm a couple years from 40 and I'm on the older end of this church. I got some gray hair going here, like prematurely, not cool. But the fact is, is we skew young. But I am incredibly thankful for those of you in here that are older that have thrown in with us. I, I, I just want to take a minute and like, Ben and Sandy, thank you. 
Thank you for being here. Thank you for putting up with us youngins <laughs> in many ways. But, but thank you for, for having a posture that, hey, you want to be discipled. You want to grow. You want to be with us, but you also want to disciple. Um, I don't know if Tony Majewski's here. I mean, I don't want to make you guys feel really old, but <laughs> I want to I wanna honor that, that there are people in this church, that older people in this church that have thrown in with us. They haven't been put off by our youth and inexperience and immaturity. And they want to grow in this church. They want to be discipled. And they want to give themselves to you as well. They want to pour out their lives that we may grow in Christ. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. And so for those of us who are younger, let's not fall into the trap and view those who are older as, hey, they're just stuck in their ways and they're not going to change. And that there's this big kind of generational gap between us. Like when churches approach life that way, it creates division. It creates this sense that, hey, there's, there's a church over here for one generation and a church over here for another generation, and that is not what God has called us to. And so for those of us who are younger, let's be intentional because, because the, the heart of the passage here is Paul is telling Timothy, a young pastor, hey, you're going to have to teach and disciple and correct those who are older. And, and if we're walking in community, that means those of us who are younger because there's more of us we're going to have to enter into those things with people who are a little bit older than us. And we do that with a heart of, hey, I want to be in community with you. I want to learn from you. I want to be discipled by you, but I also know God has called me to speak into your life as well. And there isn't this, hey, you're this generation, you do things one way, I'm just generation, we do things another way. No, we're together in this. And so we honor one another. We treat each other with respect in that way. And so we are called to urge those who are older than us with humility appeal to them as those that even though they need to grow, we recognize, hey, you probably know more than me. You probably have more wisdom than I do. And so I want to honor that and respect that. I want to build you up. This instruction also applies to those of us who are young and we're engaging those more in our peer group. So not only does he speak to how to treat older men and older women, he also speaks to how to treat those who are more in our peer group, younger, as brothers and sisters. Sibling relationships have a particular strength and power to them. Like I think of my relationship with my brother growing up. Man, my brother could annoy me. Like he did this thing where he would, when he really wanted to get under my skin, he'd start mimicking my like, facial expressions. And then when I would get angry, he'd kind of like furrow his brow like I furrow my brow. And he just had this way of getting under my skin. He just knew how to push my buttons. But here's the thing about my brother. He was my biggest cheerleader. Like when it came to sports, he was, and so we played sports together. We were on the same team most of our time growing up. He would, he would be on the bench cheering the loudest for me. Like he was my biggest cheerleader. He thought I was like a hundred times smarter than I really am. Like he he was my biggest fan. Like, I knew my brother had my back. As much as he would try to poke at me at times, I never doubted that he loved me and he had my back. He also was probably the greatest accountability partner I have ever had in my life. Like, he would get on me when he knew I needed to be pushed. Like, I remember this one time, he woke me up at like two in the morning. And, and it really, I was in, in this, this season where I was like living in some sin and he woke me up at two in the morning because he just felt burdened by the Lord. He had to talk to me. And I'm like, man, thank you, but can we do this at like 10? I mean, that, that would be a great time. Let's, let's go get breakfast like at 10 in the morning. But he loved me that much that he didn't care. 
Like he, he grabbed me at two in the morning and woke me up and said, hey, I have to appeal to you. And so sibling relationships are intended to have this wonderful power to them. Their siblings are allies and they're advocates. They're able to encourage and sharpen one another. They watch each other's backs and they have each other's backs. It's a beautiful picture that God's word gives us about how we are to relate to one another as brothers and sisters. When we challenge and correct each other, we don't do it harshly. We don't do it in a way that, hey, I want to wreck you so I can build myself up and have better status in the family. No, we say, I love you. You're my brother. You're my sister. I want you to thrive. I'm not competing with you. I'm with you. I'm your ally. I'm your advocate. And this is the way that we bring correction and teaching and discipleship to one another. We urge and appeal to one another with a view towards, hey, we're family. We're brothers and sisters. And I want you to thrive. I want you to grow in your walk with Christ. And so church, this is our heart towards one another. To those in your gospel community, they're your brother, they're your sister. Love them, be their ally, be their advocate, that they may grow in their faith. I also want to note this phrase, in all purity, in verse 2. It's an important one. And so, men, let us never forget that the women in this church are sisters in Christ. And you don't objectify your sister in Christ. You don't demean your sister. You don't use her to gratify your own desires. And so, to the young guys in the room, so those of you who may be in high school, college, post-college, and you're single— um, understand that that girl is your sister in Christ first. She's not your next date. She, she's not a, a means for you to gratify your lust. Like, treat her with honor and respect and dignity. Treat her as you would a sister in Christ. Treat her with all purity. And let that be the foundation of your relationship. And if the Lord does more with it, awesome. Like I love doing premarital counseling. But let the foundation of your relationship be purity, and I'm going to build you up as my sister in Christ. And ladies, let me, let me just say this and encourage you in this. Like, if a guy claims to be a Christian, but if his posture to you isn't, I'm going to build you up in Christ and see you thrive in Christ first, I got one word for you to say to him. Next. Like, move on. You know, kick him to the curb. Or, or, or I'll talk to him, and if he's not cool, I'll kick him to the curb for you. But the relationship should be, hey, we're building each other up in Christ. And at the heart of treating one another a family is commitment. This is the beauty of being part of a family. It, it comes with built-in commitment. Like you have a group of people that are just naturally inclined to be committed to you. I mean, I've seen some of the most dysfunctional families. They just hurt each other. They annoy each other. They do really stupid things to each other. But yet, at the end of the day, they, they stay. And you ask them, why? why? Why does it seem like you just hate each other all the time, but yet you're there? Well, we're family. That's what you do. And so even the most dysfunctional families recognize, hey, commitment is what makes families work. Commitment is important. It defines family. At the same time, healthy families understand that commitment is more than just hanging around and not abandoning each other. A godly, healthy commitment affects the way that I engage you, causes me to build you up rather than tear you down, causes me not to go passive when you're in sin. 
my posture to you because I'm committed to you is that I will both encourage you and build you up, but also correct when I need to correct. I will disciple and I will be committed to your growth, but I'm gonna do it in such a way that you're built up and encouraged and you thrive. And so to both teach and correct and encourage, these are the things that mark a family. This is what it means to be committed to someone's growth. And so let me ask you, are you committed to the growth of your brothers and sisters? Are you teaching and discipling and correcting and encouraging and urging them? Are you committed to the family? So families commit to one another's growth. The second thing this passage tells us related to treating each other as family is that families commit to each other's care. Here's what verses three through eight call us to. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So we're going to talk about aspects of this passage next week. But here's what I want to highlight this morning. God's word makes it very clear that nuclear families are to care for one another. And the more vulnerable your position in the family, the more care you receive. So those of you that have infants, you know the most vulnerable in your family, the family rallies around to care for the baby. That's the way families work. We care for one another. We're committed to each other's care, especially the most vulnerable. In this scenario, Paul's talking about widows. In first century church, first century Roman culture, I should say, widows were particularly vulnerable. They didn't have the means to care for themselves. They didn't need the means to provide for themselves. And so they often had to rely on family members and other people. And so what this means is that their family was to care for them. And God's word goes hard on any family that would not care for mom or grandma, especially if you're a Christian family. But if there wasn't that family to provide, then the church was to step in because the church was this woman's family. And so the principle is, is that families commit to care for one another. In your nuclear family, you care for one another. And in the church family, we care for another, one another, especially the most vulnerable. Those who are weak, those who are beat up, those who have been worn out, those who are unable to help themselves. Church, we step in and we care for those. And too often, the church shoots her wounded. Like we will heap more shame and scorn and make problems worse. We'll say, hey, you're in that mess because of, it's your own fault you're in that mess. It's because of your sin that you're in that mess. Here's all the ways that you messed up. Well, if you wouldn't have done this, you wouldn't have been in this mess. Those things are probably all true, but is that really the way you enter in to help people? Is that really what's gonna pull somebody out of their pain and their misery and their suffering and their sin? Hey, let me just throw more shame on you. Let me make you feel even worse about what you've done. Too often churches do this rather than stepping in and saying, hey, I know you're in a bad spot and I don't care if that was because of things you did to get yourself there or circumstances outside your control. Know that I'm committed to loving and caring for you. I'm getting in this pit with you and I'm gonna love you because you're family. 
That is to be our heart and our posture. And so church, who are the most weak and vulnerable in our community? Who are the most weak and vulnerable in your gospel community? Are you caring for them? Are you committing to caring for them? Have you jumped into the mess and the pain and loved them as you would love a brother or sister? This is the family life God has called us to. Now, commitment, it's a powerful and necessary component of family. Because when in a family where members are committed to each other's growth and to caring for one another, people grow and thrive. However, this isn't our default state, as I said. Because of our sin, because of our brokenness, because of our selfishness, our natural drift isn't towards godly commitment, but it's towards selfishness and pride and dysfunction. I mean, consider the ways that this plays out in our lives. Like on the surface, it may seem we're committed, but the moment sin and pain and mess and conflict come into the picture, what do we do? We run. We isolate. We bail. We don't commit. Or we can be very committed to other people encouraging us. Yes, I will be part of this community as long as you encourage me. But I really don't spend much time encouraging others. Or rather than committing to a church family come what may, we want the church family to reflect our preferences. Hey, as long as the church does things this way, as long as people are this way, as long as my preferences and my comfort are catered to, then I'll stay. We, not, we may not be able to choose our nuclear family, but when it comes to our church family, I'm going to choose and it's all about my preference. And we are okay with teaching as long as it doesn't press too hard. But man, we resist and stiff-arm discipleship and exhortation and correction that presses deeply on our sin. And we so often go passive rather than committing ourselves to each other's growth. Like oftentimes, unless something is really bad, we sort of just keep people at a distance. We kind of keep their sin at a distance. Oh, it's not that bad. Oh, they're not that much of a mess. But yet time after time after time, the Lord prompts us, the Lord gives us opportunities to speak into each other's lives, to really love each other and correct each other and teach each other and disciple each other, and we go passive. Like we're committed to maybe the extremes, but that wonderful middle ground where most of life is lived, we go passive with one another. And so church, apart from the power of the gospel, apart from Christ working in our lives, this is really how we're going to live. We're going to drift into these areas of non-commitment or shallow commitment. Like apart from the gospel at best, we're going to keep things at a surface level, only going as deep as our comfort allows us. At worst, we're going to remain in dysfunctional isolation. We may show up, we may occupy a space, but we're not actually living committed to the family. And God calls us to so much more than comfortable presence, preference and isolation. And so this is why I want to remind us that Christ has made his family. Like, like I can press on, hey, this is what the church is to look like. This is how we're to live our lives committed to one another. But unless this is grounded in the gospel, unless this is grounded in who Christ has made us, then this is going to have no power. This is going to just come across as legalism. It's going to come across heavy-handed and harsh. And so let me remind us that Christ has made us family. We treat each other as family because Christ has made us family. We need to fix our hearts on the truth 
that through the gospel, Christ has done this. He has made us family. This is our identity. And so we, I want our identity, this identity in Christ, to grab our affections so it transforms the way we live. So here's how I want to I get into this. Consider that the gospel gives us a picture of two rooms. The first is a courtroom. And we stand before God, the holy and righteous judge, guilty sinners. Because of our sin, we stand condemned. Because of our rebellion, we stand condemned. But rather than punishing us as we deserve, Christ steps in and takes our punishment. God puts the punishment that we deserve on Christ and declares us not guilty, innocent, forgiven, righteous, blameless. Because of Christ, God the judge declares over us not guilty. But it doesn't stop there. God steps off the bench, takes off his judge's robe, puts his arm around us, moves us out of the courtroom into another room, the family room. God Almighty, God the righteous holy judge, becomes our father, and we are brought into the family of God. This is what theologian J.I. Packer says about what it means to be a Christian. You can sum up the whole of the teaching of the New Testament in a simple phrase. You speak of it as, the revel- as a revelation of the fatherhood of a holy creator. Then he goes on to say this, that for a Christian, adoption into the family of God is the highest privilege that the gospel offers us. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship. He establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. This truth that God is our Father, that we've been adopted into his family, is all over the pages of Scripture. 1 John 3, 1, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. I love that. John says we are the children of God, and as if his readers didn't believe it, and that is what we are. Romans 8, 14 through 17, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellows, fellow heirs with Christ. So brothers and sisters, that you are a child of God needs to be the controlling and centering thought as you consider who you are in Christ. God wants you to see him as a father. He wants you to understand that you are his son, you are his daughter. Too many of you are still in the courtroom. Too many of you are living in the courtroom. And here's what happens. At best, you're going to live in this place of constant guilt. You're going to live in this place where I have to constantly feel like I have to perform for God in order for him to like me. You're going you're to almost feel like a criminal who's on probation. Well, I'm, I've been released and set free, but if I mess up, I'm right back in. And if you live in the courtroom, this is how you're going to engage God, that he's still angry, just waiting for you to mess up, and so he can pronounce guilty back on you. And guess what? Guilt is a terrible motivator. Like, guilt doesn't drive you to love. Guilt doesn't drive you to sacrifice. Guilt doesn't drive you to get in the pit and mess with your brothers and sisters. 
Guilt will only take you so far. Like far enough to where I don't feel bad about myself and I'm okay with God. Okay, I'm good. This is all the farther I need to go. Like guilt never drives anyone to sacrifice. And so you will live your life in a superficial level. At worst, and unfortunately this is where some people in the church live, at worst you're believing a false gospel. Because here's what you believe. You believe that if you say the right prayer, say the right mantra, God will let you out of hell. So it's like, I just need to get out of hell free. And so if I do the right thing, I'm not, I'm not gonna go to hell, I'm good. But there's no love for Jesus in your heart. Like you don't care about loving God and serving God. All it is for you is, I don't wanna get punished. And so the way you live your life reflects no desire to love the Lord, glorify Christ, and give your life away to the mission of God. No desire to make disciples and to love and to sacrifice. So if we stay in the courtroom, it's gonna stunt health. It's gonna stunt unity. It's gonna stunt our ability to love and disciple one another. Church, you're a son, you're a daughter. Step out of the courtroom and go into the family room. That is your identity. You have received the spirit of adoption. You are an heir with Christ. All the riches that belong to Christ, he has given to you and belong to you. And so I I want us to be motivated out of our identity, that our motivation is that we are sons and daughters of God, and that is what gives us power. That is what causes us to sacrifice. That is what brings us joy. That is what brings us grace and peace. But what is more, that we are children of God isn't just an individualistic identity. It's not that God saved me so that he can kind of perpetuate my loneliness. Like, okay, cool, I'm good with God, and now I'm just kind of doing my own thing. No, when you're saved, you're brought into a family. God has done something powerful through Jesus Christ to create family. This is what Ephesians 2, 14 through 22 says. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the home structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Through Christ, we've been made family. Through Christ, we've been brought together. Everything that should separate us, race, gender, class, preferences, political parties, all the things that can divide us, Christ is torn down. Christ is destroyed. In his death and resurrection, he has destroyed every division. And he's reconciled us to each other. He's brought us peace and he's unified us as one family. And so this family, you and I together, we're a temple. I mean, this is some profound language. God brings us together as one family and the spirit of God dwells among us. Like, this is the power of us as family. We're the new temple. It's not a building somewhere. It's us as a people. And so Christ didn't just die so that you could be reconciled to God. He died so that every division that might separate you from other people could be torn down so you could live in relationship with one another as family. 
And, and here's where I think we need to push a little bit. Because do you understand that the spirit is thicker than blood? Do you recognize that the bonds of family that the spirit creates are greater and stronger than the bonds that your DNA creates? Like, it, it's great to have family built on a shared DNA, but it's even greater to belong to a family created by the Spirit. Like, shared lineage is amazing, but a shared Heavenly Father is even greater. And so I'm not, I'm not minimizing our nuclear family. I just want you to understand that Scripture says that your nuclear family, if you belong to Christ, has been brought into a greater family and has been given a greater purpose than just the bounds of your DNA and relationships. Like through Jesus Christ, your family is given something greater to do than just care about your own particular needs. Like through Jesus Christ, your, your call is more than just, hey, I just need to get through life and make sure we're all healthy and successful. Like through Jesus Christ, we've been given a greater family, a greater purpose, a greater call. The family of God isn't limited by DNA, isn't limited by social class, it isn't limited by political party or comfort or preferences. The gospel of Jesus Christ crushes all barriers and it takes people who have no business being in a relationship together and makes them family. Doesn't just make them acquaintances, doesn't just make them friends, makes them family. And so this is one of the reasons why we, we do ministry like we do. This is why we have gospel communities the way we do. Because think about it this way. Like we may not be racists or like kind of classist in the way we look down on poor people or look down on you know, rich people or people that are in different socioeconomic class. We might not do that, but we're preferences-ists. <laughs> like we will, our lives will be driven by preference. So I want to be in community with everyone who's my same age, has the same amount of kids, kind of roughly my socioeconomic status, because it's easy. It's comfortable. Like, like there's, there's a natural drift towards people who are like us. Hey, when, when everybody's the same, less conflict much easier to love people who are like me. And so we will drift this way by nature if we are not careful. And so what we try to do with gospel community is intentionally say, no, we're not going to play that game. And so rather than, hey, let's put everybody in the same sort of life stage together, no, let's mix it. Let's mix it with people who are married, who are single, people who have kids and don't have kids. Let's mix it age because that is where the family of God is put on display. That's where the power of the gospel is put on display. That is where we get to see our lives transformed because it's not my preference that's changing me. It's not because everybody's like me that everything's good. No, it's the gospel that is at work. And so when we put aside preference, when we put aside the things that would naturally divide us and come together as the people of God, man, the power of the gospel is put on display. We are transformed and the world begins to take notice. And so church, let's be honest. Like what hope does this divided world have? Like what hope does a, a world divided by race and class and gender and preference have? Because education isn't fixing the problem. Government isn't fixing the problem. Media and entertainment aren't fixing the problem. The only thing that fixes the problem is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the world does not see it play out in us, where are they going to see it? And so church, it is a powerful thing for us to treat each other as family and love each other as family because it shines a light into the world. It isn't just about us. 
It's so that others can see the glory of Christ and the power of the gospel at work in us. So when we commit to one another as family, when we commit to each other's care, when we commit to each other's growth, we're testifying to Jesus Christ. We're being missional. And that is what God's word calls us to this morning. And so here's what this means, church. As a family, we no longer live for and depend upon ourselves. We're children of God, brothers and sisters who depend upon our heavenly father. We live to bring honor and glory to his name. We no longer live in isolation, but we love one another. We're committed to one another. We serve one another. We want to see each other grow and thrive and be cared for. We enjoy being together. We disciple and nurture and hold each other accountable. And the love we have for one another, we want that to spill out into this city and into this world that those who do not know Christ, those who are not part of the family of God, would become the family of God. Amen? Let's pray.